Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Cardio Nerds, and welcome to another installment of the Cardio Nerds Critical Care Series. My name is Yoav Karpinchev, and I'm a cardiology and critical care fellow at the University of Pennsylvania and one of the co-chairs of the Critical Care Series. I'm joined today by my co-chair and fellow extraordinaire at the Cleveland Clinic, Eunice Dugan. Welcome, Eunice. Hey, Cardio Nerds. Excited to be here. We're also very lucky to welcome Sean Dickton to talk about VT and Electrical Storm today. Sean is a third-year cardiology fellow at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. He completed his undergraduate education at Boston College and obtained his medical degree and Master's of Public Health from Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. Clinical and research interests include atrial fibrillation, ablation techniques, sports cardiology, and physician wellness. He'll be starting electrophysiology fellowship at Temple University Hospital this upcoming academic year. Outside of the hospital, he enjoys cooking, escape rooms, and listening to podcasts. He's an avid New York Giants fan, attempting to hide this as a current Philadelphian. Welcome, Sean. Thank you, Yo. It's so great to be back recording for the Cardio Nerds. And thank you to this awesome team that we have today, especially Dr. Chu, who I'm honored to introduce here as our faculty speaker. Dr. Chu is a cardiac electrophysiologist in New York and an assistant clinical professor at the Eichen School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Chu is a graduate of Stanford University and the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. She trained in internal medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School, in cardiology at NYU Medical Center, and in clinical cardiac electrophysiology at Columbia University Medical Center. Dr. Chu has received awards as a clinician and as an investigator. She has served in leadership roles on national committees and writing groups, and also serves on editorial boards of several cardiovascular journals. Dr. Chu is deeply interested in risk stratification and management of arrhythmia patients. And in parallel, the continuum of science from the real world to scientific documents and clinical guidelines to care implementation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Chu. Thank you for the team's work at this podcast series. Happy to be here. Great. And to kick things off, I thought we could go through a case together. Our patient that we have is Mr. J.B., who is a 55-year-old man with a medical history of type 1 diabetes and ischemic cardiomyopathy with a large territory infarction and an LV ejection fraction of 25%. He received coronary artery bypass grafting at his hospitalization five years ago, uh, which was complicated by a post-operative VF arrest. He was resuscitated, improved over the presentation, and received an ICD prior to his discharge. He now presents to the outpatient cardiology office with malaise over the past two to three days. He does not complain of exertional dyspnea, and in between these episodes, he feels generally normal. He notes that his primary care provider changed his medications recently. His ECG shows ventricular tachycardia and he is sent to the emergency department. The admitting inpatient cardiology team notes on his telemetry that he has had several periods of ventricular tachycardia, each lasting longer than 30 seconds interspersed with a normal sinus rhythm. Before we step into manage, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Chu, uh, what your initial thoughts are and simply how you would characterize this patient's problem. Thank you for painting a picture of this young guy for us, Sean. So I think my initial impression is that this is a sick guy. This is a young guy 
with diabetes, with a history of cabbage, with heart failure, with reduced ejection fraction, with a history of ICD implant. And now he has ventricular tachycardia as seen on outpatient EKG. So this is a lot all packed into one for someone walking in, coming to an outpatient practice. So I think there are a couple of questions that are running through my mind right now. So number one, with a broad impression, this is a sick guy, a young guy with a sick substrate. This is a broad impression. The second thing, ventricular tachycardia on outpatient EKG is unusual. Oftentimes when they're not sustained, they come and go. When someone has sustained VT enough to be kept on EKG, it's both a gift to the electrophysiologist as it's informative and potentially can inform us when we think about VT ablation down the line. But it's also concerning because I do wonder that despite having an ICD, he remains in VT. So what's going on with his ICD? How did the ICD respond to the VT? What does a VT look like? Is it monomorphic? Is it polymorphic? Did the tachycardiac cyclings respond, correspond to the device detected VT? Is there any detection issue, treatment issue? And importantly, one thing that I was listening for but I haven't heard so far is his hemodynamics. What's the blood pressure like when he was in VT that was being captured as he was lying on the outpatient table getting a 12-fleet EKG? So these are all things I'm rapidly considering. So this is what I consider sort of a fast and furious situation, right? With a guy who's pretty young, pretty sick, you're thinking about a lot of different things all at once and thinking about getting him acutely to a much higher level of care setting. And sending the guy to the ED is absolutely the right thing to do. The question related to it is in what way did he travel to the ED? I certainly hope that an ambulance was called. He was escorted by an ambulance in a highly monitored setting and not just went on the street and tried to walk himself over. Thanks, Dr. Chu. That's a great kind of framework you laid out for us. I would think many of us are thinking of some of the same questions as well. And as you said, we're pretty worried about this patient. Can you talk us through what new onset recurrent VT means to you for a patient with these risk factors? Or more broadly, why do patients get VT? So Eunice, this is a great question. So when we see someone like this, the phrase that comes to my mind is thinking about risk factors is substrate. Electrophysiologists like to talk about substrate as in what's the material, what's the substrate that's in the heart that's presumably anitis for the issue. So in this case, this is a patient with a history of cabbage, with heart failure, with reduced ejection fraction, presumably some elements of prior ischemia, prior scar, potentially from prior myocardial infarction. We're piecing it all together that this sounds to me likely a patient with ischemic cardiomyopathy, although we have not been told very explicitly. So this is a patient with likely structural heart disease and specifically with the prior cabbage, likely ischemic cardiomyopathy, likely scar that can serve as the substrate, the nidus for ventricular tachycardia. In fact, since we have 12-fleet electrocardiogram, we may actually be able to localize, based on the surface 12-fleet, the exit of the ventricular tachycardia and ask ourselves the question, does that correspond to the area of his prior infarct where he would also show up on imaging with wall motion abnormality? And if so, that's indeed the scar and the substrate and the nidus of the ventricular tachycardia. Wow, thank you, Dr. Chu. So now that we characterize 
problem, I want to ask you what your first steps would be for this patient's management. I think importantly, the first step in thinking about how we approach a case like this is thinking about whether or not this is structural heart disease related, whether or not this is scar based. And so far, we check likely yes and likely yes. We have not been told whether or not the ventricular tachycardia is monomorphic. If it is scar-based related, quite often this can be a monomorphic VT directly stemming from that scar area. In some other patients, there may also be polymorphic VT, which may stem from electrolyte disarray, ischemia, proarrhythmic agent, and other triggers. A good way that I like to think about arrhythmia patients in general is to think about a patient's substrate and trigger. And by substrate, we're thinking about, again, the material that can make the arrhythmia. In our case, it sounds like there's a component of ischemic cardiomyopathy. In some other patients' cases, the substrate may be related to non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, channelopathy, arrhythmogenic condition, or inflammatory condition. Then we also think about triggers, and triggers are the more acute issues. The triggers can be related to electrolyte, ischemia, volume, inflammation, autonomic imbalance, or offending agent. In the setting of the triggers, we often need to take on a multi-pronged approach, whereas we consider these triggers for the sake of electrolyte is thinking about electrolyte imbalance, where we may be able to replete and replenish the electrolyte. When we think about ischemia, we want to understand whether or not active ischemia is present and whether revascularization might be beneficial and whether or not hemodynamic support may also improve vascular flow. Volume status can also contribute to demand and supply imbalance, especially in the setting of patients with left ventricular assist devices. Inflammation, such as sarcoid, myocarditis, when applicable, may require that the help of steroid or anti-inflammatory therapy. Autonomic imbalances, especially with heightened adrenergic state, heightened sympathetic state, may need the help of sedation or autonomic modulation. Proarrhythmic agents can trigger VT and should be removed, and removing the offending agents, such as QT prolonging agents, can alleviate triggers for EAT and being mindful of digoxin toxicity, which can also be a trigger for delay after depolarization. When we think about substrate, the broad approaches include hemodynamic concern immediately and is hemodynamic unstable proceeding with ACLS-guided approach. If the patient has existing ICD, additional optimization and understanding of the ICD therapy, and then consideration of antiarrhythmic agents, both removing the offending agent, but also selecting the optimal agent, and then assessing for candidacy for ablation and treating with BT ablation as appropriate. And these will also dovetail with several of the considerations regarding hemodynamic support and autonomic modulation. Thank you so much, Dr. Chu. That was great. Thank you for walking us through your differential and thank you for walking us through your thought process when you approach a patient with ventricular tachycardia. Throughout the patient's presentation, they were hemodynamically stable. The ECG showed monomorphic ventricular tachycardia. An ECG recorded while they were in the emergency department showed just sinus rhythm that did not have any ST segment changes. Blood work eventually returned that showed that they had a potassium level of 2.8 in addition to potassium repletion, the patient was given IV amiodarone as a bolus and then started on an infusion. The patient is ultimately discharged to complete an oral load of amiodarone and is continued on his home metoprolol therapy. 
the medication change his primary care doctor had made was adding metolazone to improve his diuretic regimen. This medication is discontinued and close follow-up is arranged. The patient does well, but returns to the emergency department two years later. This time, our patient, Mr. JB, presents to the emergency department with multiple shocks from his ICD. He was in his normal state of health, having dinner with his family, when he noted acute onset malaise and dyspnea, followed by a loud bang. He is yelping in pain as he is shocked for a 13th time, according to his device interrogation, which reveals, again, monomorphic VT. Dr. Chu, at this time, what would your medical management consist of, and what other modalities would you be considering? Is there anything you would tell the ED to do urgently? So this is very helpful. I think we hear again that he's back in the ED. He has monomorphic BT that they have ascertained. I'm happy to hear that his hemodynamics are relatively stable so that it buys you a little bit of time to sort out and for us to have a quick discussion. I think for us here, knowing that he has an ICD, that comprise one of the key areas of management that we need to sort out better. The second thing is for him, so far, he's being amiodarone as his medication. So let's talk a little bit more about what to do in patients who have existing ICD who present with ventricular tachycardia. The very first thing that we ought to do, and this is something that we need to tell the ED to be ready for us, is this device needs to be interrogated. I think this typically takes the form of the cardiology and the EP fellow and potentially also the EP attending all coming to the patient's bedside at once and someone as sick as this so that we have an understanding of what's going on with the defibrillator. You want to assess for the prior VT. You want to see whether or not the prior VTs were appropriately detected. In a patient with an existing ICB, there are two things that are critically important as we interrogating the ICB. I classify these in on one side assessing and then the other side implementing. So what are we assessing? We are assessing to see if the device has appropriately detected the ventricular tachycardia and confirming that indeed the rhythm triggering the shocks were appropriate, meaning that these were related to ventricular tachyarrhythmia, be it ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, and not related to inappropriate shock, meaning shock or therapy deliverer for non-ventricular tachyarrhythmia reasons, which could be SVT, AFib, non-physiologic, signals, leaf failure, etc. So you want to ascertain that the therapies would deliver appropriately for ventricular tachycardia. You want to see that the primary episodes of ventricular tachycardia were appropriately picked up. The tachycardia was noted appropriately sent. The marker channels reflect those. Or did the tachycardia not get detected or not get therapy because they were too slow? So remember, if the ventricular tachycardia is below the program ranges, the ventricular tachycardia can go on without machine program intervention. Then you want to see if the prior therapies deliver for the ventricular tachycardia were effective. You want to see if the shock had a clean break. Did the shock terminate? Did the shock need subsequent multiple alternate shocks? We heard that this patient received multiple shocks. What happened in between? Was your clean break each time, followed by a recurrence of the tachycardia of the VT? Or was it the same VT that just kept on going and going and none of the shocks actually produce a clean break at all? We also want to know if ATP, which stands for anti-tachycardic pacing, if ATP was initiated. 
when the window was within the programmable window to allow for ATP. So antitachycardia pacing, it's the ICD's way of trying to outrun the arrhythmia. They can be programmed as bursts or ramps, whereby the machine tried to outrun it, either as a burst, as some cycling, as some will race faster than a tachycardia, or as ramp, where it progressively runs faster and faster and faster. We want to know whether ATP successfully terminated any of the ventricular tachycardia episode, which by the way, for monomorphic BT can be quite successfully terminated with some ATP, or whether the ATP actually inadvertently accelerated the tachycardia, made it even faster, or made it degenerate into ventricular fibrillation. Then the other side of it, we want to understand whether the ICD therapies were appropriately implemented so, for example, in this patient who has an ICD, we were not told whether or not this is a transvenous or subcutaneous device. But if this were a transvenous device, this would be a device that's capable of pacing, delivering ATP. As such, we talk about the pace termination. We could actually also acutely bedside try to outrun the ventricular tachycardia if the patient is still in ventricular tachycardia. We also want to know what the shocks were programmed as. We can also bedside whether the programmer delivering internal shock in front of us. We want to assess the shock factor for programming, whether there's any ability for us to customize the vector, the polarity, the energy, and the charge time. And finally, we want to understand what a clinical ventricular tachycardia is, especially if we're able to capture on the electrocardiogram, whether the programming is appropriate to capture the tachycardia and whether it accounts for the use of antiarrhythmic therapy, such as the amiodarone that's been previously started, so that it's still remains appropriate to detect the ventricular tachycardia so that we can best pick up and treat the tachycardia as needed. So that's phase one. So anyone with an existing ICD coming in with ICD shock, ICD therapy, and especially if known to be ventricular tachycardia, a thorough evaluation of the existing ICD looking at the assessment arm as well as implementation arm are critical to the initial approach. The second thing, obviously, is thinking about the patient. The patient has had amiodarone therapy at this point, and on top of the amiodarone therapy, what is that EKG looking like? What are the electrolytes looking like? And as we think about some of the prior discussions that we had in laying on the framework, whether or not the QTC is of concern, whether or not the electrolytes need to be optimized. And then following that, if the patient needs an additional antiarrhythmic, what agents may be reasonable? So assuming that we've done a thorough evaluation and it turned out that the ICD shocks were ineffective, we may need to further assess to see whether or not the hardware or the software, whether the ICD system itself is functioning normally, whether the shock impedance has been compromised, whether the lead is still working appropriately. And if that's the case, external pads should be on and connected to a zone for this patient who is at high risk for having recurrent ventricular tachycardia. The other side of the management, so one side of the management has to do with upfront understanding and optimization of the ICD system. The other side of the management that's immediate and bedside involves antiarrhythmic agent. So when we think about antiarrhythmic agents, we need to take into account the patient's comorbidity, patient history of other arrhythmia, patient hemodynamic, underlying substrate, QTC. 
as well as plans for ablation. Amy Odron is the first line agent that started with OBT treatment. Lidocaine has the advantage of being shorter acting, easier to turn off, and optimal for someone who's being teed off for ablation. Procainamide is an option for ventricular tachycardia, however, may compromise blood pressure and um, be associated with hypotension in the acute space, with, especially with IV procainamide. Thank you, Dr. Chu. What an incredible overview and framework about managing the patient, the device, medications, and thinking about the patient as a whole. Under your care, this patient is getting phenomenal care. Thinking about electrical storm more broadly, what pathophysiologic mechanisms do you try to target to stabilize patients like this? So for someone like this, this patient obviously benefits from consideration of subsidy and triggers that we previously talked about. The heightened sympathetic state can also be further optimized. And typically, when we think about VT storm and someone who needs additional optimization with sympathetic state, the initial approach is sedation. And we see this frequently in clinical practice that these are the patients that you proceed with sedation and intubation so that you get their sympathetic state optimally suppressed. There are additional things that we may further discuss later on today, but this is by far one of the first line ways to drive down the sympathetic state. Another thing that's critically important for someone like this who has a history of ischemic cardiomyopathy, who already has a low EF, there comes a point that we may need to think about mechanical support and better understanding coronary vasculature again, or whether or not additional revascularization needs to be considered. Thank you for that excellent input, Dr. Cho. Moving on with our case, our patient was ultimately reloaded with amiodarone and was started on a lidocaine infusion. Additionally, he was started on propranolol. And after confirming the patient's surrogate decision maker and ruling out other immediately reversible causes, the patient was intubated and then sedated. Afterwards, his telemetry showed a sinus rhythm with occasional VPDs and couplets, but without any sustained VT. Man, I'm really glad we stabilized this really critically ill patient. But of course, we need to quickly start thinking about next steps. In your practice, Dr. Chu, at what point do you offer catheter ablation? Can you talk us through patient selection, safety, and efficacy? These are great thoughts. I think ablation is definitely something that we're actually thinking for this patient at this point. Again, this is a ischemic cardiomyopathy patient who has diabetes. It's, you know, upfront, we acknowledge that for someone like this, it's reasonable to ensure adequate revascularization of whether or not upstream hemodynamic supports needed. We acknowledge that monomorphic VT is likely what's at play. We've seen this at least two times now. That is in two separate hospitalizations. In this most recent time, certainly within a 24-hour period, we heard about at least 13 shocks and there's additional discussions of the burden of VT. I think this is a patient that deserves consideration for a VT ablation. I think the totality of the study these days demonstrate benefit of VT ablation over strategy of antiarrhythmic escalation for a patient with recurrent VT, especially in ischemic cardiomyopathy. Of these, I think the most notable one is for us to discuss is the Vanish study. So the Vanish study had randomized 259 patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy and an ICD who had VT despite antiarrhythmic therapy. So this sounds more like our patient. In a one-to-one fashion, these patients were randomized to antiarrhythmic escalation, which was addition of mixolytine 
or the increased dose of amiodarone to higher than 300 milligrams per day versus VT ablation, where in their protocol, they were targeting all inducible VTs. With this study, they found that there was a significantly lower rate of the composite primary endpoint of death ventricular tachycardia storm or appropriate ICD shock among patients undergoing catheter ablation compared to patients who received escalation antiarrhythmic therapy. So this population critically for this discussion actually also included a patient specifically with VT storm, albeit a small population, but it's certainly one of the inclusion criteria. Inpatient with electrical storm due to incessant slow monomorphic VT. Again, I was not given a tachycardian cycle length, i.e. the EP equivalent for a heart rate, a ventricular rate. So I don't know whether or not this is a slow monomorphic VT. But presumably, this is a patient who is already being on amiodarone therapy. So the VT circuit's already a little bit slower. And then now he's coming in with electrical storm due to incessant VT. Let's say that his VT is a slow VT. Ablation would be quite advantageous over antiarrhythmic therapy, owing to concern for further slowing the VT in an already sick heart and the difficulty of further adjunct optimization of ICD programming given a slow VT. So I think these two things both favor having this patient strongly considered as a strong candidate for ventricular tachycardia ablation. The flip side of it, so now we understand the indication for this patient to proceed with VT ablation, is thinking about patient's risk. Certainly, from the very, very beginning, we acknowledge that this is a patient who is a high-risk patient from the very, very beginning. And many of his comorbidity that contribute to his high risk are also risk factors that have been incorporated into a specific risk score. So there's a risk score that's being developed to help risk stratify patients to identify those who are at increased risk for adverse periprocedural outcomes. And this score is developed to predict hemodynamic decompensation in patients undergoing scar-related VT ablation. The different components of the score include pulmonary disease, which would give the patient five points. Age greater than 60, which would give the patient three points. General anesthesia, which would give the patient four points. Ischemic cardiomyopathy, which would give the patient six points. New York Heart Association class three or four, which would give the patient six points. EF less than 25%, which would give the patient three points. BT storage, which would give the patient five points. And diabetes, which would give the patient three points. So using this pain score, a score greater or equal to 17 has been associated with increased risk for periprocedural hemodynamic decompensation. This patient, he was 55 at presentation, has aged at least two years for this second presentation. As far as we know, he has no pulmonary disease. We don't know he's in your card association class at this point, but he certainly has at least diabetes. He's presenting a VT storm. His EF was previously 25%. That might have further decrease. He has a history of ischemic cardiomyopathy, and he's about to be sedated with general anesthesia. So this is certainly mathematically and as a composite, this is a patient with high risk for hemodynamic decompensation. This, in addition to discussing his indication for VT ablation, calls to action and the importance for a clear discussion with the patient and family with an understanding of his elevator risk. As we head into his procedure, 
the two other important things to think about are one, optimization of the other aspect as much as possible. And these include optimization of his heart failure, optimization of electrolyte status, and optimization of his potential ischemia if applicable. And intraprocedurally, this is the kind of patient with high risk for periprocedural hemodynamic decompensation that would benefit from upfront prophylactic mechanical support during the ablation so to permit induction of the arrhythmia and mapping of the ventricular tachycardia so that the procedure can be maximally tolerable. And also the other side of it that I should bring up is the, the radio frequency catheter that we use for these ablation procedure is typically an irrigated catheter. What that means is that it's actually actively dripping fluid into the heart as we ablating is dripping fluid through the catheter. So the fluid balance needs to be something that the anesthesia team and the EP team are constantly thinking as we're doing the procedure that we want to make sure we optimize the fluid balance during the case and before and after the case especially with the use of the irrigated catheter. The last part related to your question about our approach for ablation is a consideration for the ablation itself. One part of it is a substrate, and that is understanding what substrate we're dealing with. In this case, presumably ischemic cardiomyopathy patient, and with a scar-based substrate where we may be able to do EP maneuver to try to identify the critical isthmus to go after the clinical tachycardia, that is the ventricular tachycardia that we were lucky enough to catch in the EKG in which the patient had initially presented. But there are also additional considerations that we take into account when we think about ablation, and that has implication on the axis, how we get to the heart, where we do the vascular axis, and when we try to get to the ventricle, are we going transeptal, are we doing retrograde? And then in terms of the ablation area, is this endocardial ablation that we are planning, or do we need to consider epicardial approach? Where is the lesion? Where is the substrate? And where do we intend for the lesion to form? And in addition to thinking about hemodynamic support, which is critically important and continue to be evaluated throughout the case, that is how the patient is doing hemodynamically, is the patient tolerating the mapping and the induction of the VT. We also would consider what we call ablation endpoint. That is how much is enough? What are we going after? Are we simply going after the clinical VT that the patient presented in? Are we going after all the inducible VT? Are we doing a substrate modification approach whereby we feel that the patient is not stable enough for the VT to be induced and mapped, but instead we will assess the substrate of the myocardium and target the area that's most likely arrhythmogenic? I hope this gives you a good sense of the general approach we take in selecting, optimizing, and thinking about an approach for VT ablation for a patient like this. Thank you so much, Dr. Chu. That was absolutely fantastic. Thank you for walking us through those landmark trials, conceptualizing them in the context of our patient, uh, offering us your approach on motodynamic support during VT ablation, and then really helping us see things from your perspective when you do think about the risks and benefits of an invasive procedure in a patient that is as sick as this one. Ultimately, our patient was transferred to the cardiovascular ICU, and a plan is made for VT catheter ablation in the EP lab. He is hemodynamically stable and out of his arrhythmia, and on the following day, he undergoes a successful VT catheter ablation. 
He is able to be extubated shortly thereafter and again is discharged home. His regimen now includes amiodarone and mixilatine in addition to his guideline-directed medical therapy. The patient is followed closely but continues to deteriorate over the next few months. Another two years later, the patient is admitted with acute decompensated heart failure that is refractory to outpatient diuretics. Echocardiography shows an ejection fraction of 15% and a right heart catheterization is performed, which shows elevated filling pressures and a depressed cardiac index. He is started on ionotropes and transferred to the cardiovascular ICU. He develops worsening ventricular arrhythmia for which IV percanamide is started. He receives percutaneous temporary LVAD to stabilize them. Ventricular arrhythmia is ongoing despite reducing the ionotropes to, to the minimum required doses. He requires RVAD support, which is placed, and then a heart transplant workup is started. So at this point, Dr. Chu, what options would you say are left for this patient who has already required antiarrhythmic therapy, sedation, and had a previous VT ablation? Wow, this guy has quite a course. I'm very happy to hear that a transplant workup is underway. Heart transplant workup is very important, very appropriate for this patient at this point, who, by the way, also sounds compliant with good social support. So he sounds like he could be a great candidate for that. But that obviously doesn't happen overnight. So in the meantime, as you have summarized, this is a patient who had required antiarrhythmic therapy, sedation, and prior ablation. So where are we at? So there are a few additional options that we may consider, but I think the big, big, big picture is this patient has been identified as being best served going to a heart transplant for his long-term care. Bearing in mind, this is still a pretty young guy who at this point, I think is five years plus two more years plus two more years, so still a little bit under 60. So still a pretty young guy. So one option for this patient at this point is certainly the help of a mechanical support. So mechanical circular support in this patient would be quite appropriate. It sounds like at this point, he already has a temporary LVAD to stabilize him. He has subsequently also received RVAD support. So for these patients, mechanical support is very appropriate, be it impella initially or surgical VADs. In this patient, he sounds like he's heading toward the bivet path while waiting for the heart transplant. The key thing to watch out for patients who end up with an LVAD, it's the nature of the volume. It's important to watch out for suction events, which can actually precipitate more ventricular arrhythmia in the setting of not so optimized on preload. The other thing that's also really important as we think about patients with LVAD is ironically, they may actually be able to tolerate the VTV fib more reasonably now because supported by the ventricular assist device. At some point, some of these patients may still need to proceed with ventricular tachycardia. And these are rare occasions because these are truly quite sick patients. So rarely, there may be VT ablations done with biventricular support. The key issue here is so in patients who have LVAD devices, apical core of the cannula is right at the apex. So a lot of the patient with ischemic cardiomyopathy, presumably, especially a cabbage patient, the LAD was probably involved at some point as one of the culprit vessels, whereby you could have apical infarct. And so that's likely a arrhythmogenic area for these ischemic cardiomyopathy patients as an itis for VT. But technically associated is that there's an LVAC cannula that's sitting right around the core. So you have to just be able to work around that. The other thing also has to do with the access. A lot of times when patients receive LVAC, the aortic valve is oversold. So earlier we had discussed that with VT ablation, you could approach either transeptally or retrograde that is retrograde through the aortic valve. 
In a patient whose aortic valve is oversewn, the axis here would typically have to be transeptal if you're approaching endocardially. Then these patients, as they're quite sick, this is likely not their first ablation. So if this is more of a Hillberry approach where you really try to temporize this patient while waiting for a heart transplant, sometimes there may be scars and lesions there they are hard to deliver. That is for patients who have prior ischemia, prior scar, prior infarct, even though most of the time it's the endocardium that's involved and therefore endocardial ablation is typically the first approach. Sometimes the infarct can be deeper, what we call intramural, as in between the endo and the epi, and those can be hard to approach. There are new technology being developed with needle catheter that may approach that better. There's also previously being a tab with what we call bipolar, meaning kind of two catheters facing toward the area of interest being delivered simultaneously as an approach. But suppose that epicardial approach is needed, epicardial access for these patients would typically need surgical assistance given likely scar as well as the devices around it. But these are really Helberry procedures. I think the last area to think about for these patients who have had so many different layers of therapy and consideration is the exciting new area of autonomic modulation. With these, there are three main techniques. They are currently on the table. Number one, percutaneous stellate gangrene blocking, which can be done bedside by anesthesia and is titratable. Number two, thoracic epidural anesthesia, which is performed by anesthesia team. However, they may be concerned regarding concomitant anticoagulation that many cardiac patients receive. Third is surgical sympathectomy. How and when we reach for surgical sympathectomy vastly differ when it's a pure electrical problem, for example, in the case of long QT syndrome, versus when there's significant heart failure structural heart disease at play, such as for this patient as a much later therapeutic modality. In patients with BT storm, bilateral surgical sympathectomy has been shown to be more beneficial than left surgical sympathectomy alone with greater freedom from ICD shock and reduction of ICD shock at one year. Of note, this is based on a study that actually comprised more of non-ischemic patient than ischemic patient, and our patient here is ischemic. That was an absolutely brilliant overview of mechanical circulatory support, repeat VT ablation considerations, and especially the unique modalities of autonomic neuromodulation. Thank you, Dr. Chu. For our patient, he underwent a percutaneous stellate ganglion block. Although it was performed in our cardiovascular ICU, he did not have any significant reduction of his VT. He did receive a repeat VT ablation with some reduction of the arrhythmia, but repeated episodes of electrical storm. His percutaneous LVAD was upgraded to a durable LVAD, but ultimately the patient had to be listed for status one for a heart transplant. And then after a long stay in the cardiovascular ICU, he received a successful heart transplantation. This is an incredible place. I'm so glad our patient had a good outcome after such a complex history. Now for patients who may not be able to go that route, Dr. Chu, what newer therapies are on the horizon? in treating patients with difficult-to-control electrical storm? Thank you for this question. I think we had a very, very exciting time in the development of ablation and VT therapy. So recently, there has been literature that's published on stereotactic radioablation for VT in the setting of electrical storm. And this is by the use of cyber knife, and this is a non-invasive delivery of substrate modification 
I will have to say, though, this is based on a small study. I think this is incredibly exciting. But for this to translate into clinical practice, we'll need larger prospective randomized study as a next step. And also, we will need to better refine our workflow in terms of how we think about ICD programming, patient follow-up, and adjunct optimization as we think about the exciting new frontier of potential non-invasive delivery of substrate modification. Well, thank you so much for going through that case with us, Dr. Cho. I certainly learned a lot and I appreciate your insight into all the different modalities and unique things to appreciate about the complexity behind electrical storm. Thank you. Dr. Chu, what are your key takeaways for us cardio nerds today? Well, thanks so much. I think, you know, certainly this is a case that made us all think a whole lot. You got all of us kind of sitting at the edge of our seats or on a roller coaster worrying about this patient and trying to think fast together. I think this case highlights the importance of the consideration of the substrate and the trigger in approaching a patient with VT and VT storm. This includes consideration of applicable cardiomyopathy and potential acute triggers and ways to mediate the triggers. Importantly, I think this case also highlights the need for a multidisciplinary partnership in the care of a patient as sick as this. Acutely while patient, our journeys here took us through at least EP, heart failure, anesthesia, CT surgery, critical care, and in transition, the ED team. And then there's also the outpatient providers. And importantly, and most importantly, this includes the patient and the patient's family who are part of the discussion and who are part of the care team. Thank you so much for involving me today. This is truly being a fantastic privilege to be here to work with you guys. And congratulations on the success of the podcast series. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Chu. And just a huge thank you from me and the rest of the team for joining us today and being on this podcast. We've learned so much from your experience and your integration of data and bringing that to the patient level with this very, very sick patient. I also wanted to thank Sean Dickton for putting together this amazing episode and Eunice, my co-chair, for joining us. So thanks, everyone.